just a trigger warning for this podcast as we do talk about depression, anxiety, and other issues related to mental health. If you are having any struggles with mental health or having any potential suicidal thoughts, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 and ask for what resources are around you that you can access immediately. All right, so let's get into it. Hello, my name is Ishan Rola, and welcome to another episode of Hidden in Plain Sight. This podcast provides a platform for people to discuss their experiences regarding a wide number of issues, from mental health to COVID-19. Speaking of the pandemic, we are on week I don't know since it started, um, and it's continuing to have effects around the world in various, various aspects. Our recent episodes have been highlighting this and sharing the voices of people who have been affected by the pandemic. This week, I talked with a patient care technician um, who provided an insight look of the pandemic before she got sick. Um, Afterwards, she talks about the difficulties of being tested and how being sick has affected her mental health. As of this podcast, she has been sick for over 70 days and her lengthy ordeal has left her with only one feeling guilt. Another episode coming right up. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. It's really good to meet you. I was really excited to talk to you about all your experiences and everything that you wanted to talk about as soon as you you contacted me. Um, So just to start off, um, I just wanted to ask you personally, um, what do you work as? Like, you were talking to me that you had, uh, you were a healthcare professional. So what, what do you do? So I am a patient care technician, which that's essentially a nurse's aide. So we're the people who do a lot of um, work with the patients with like activities of daily living. We're the ones taking primary care of the patient. So um, I'm the one who goes in if a patient needs help with like eating, bathing, dressing, getting up out of bed. Um, and I work mostly with older people. So that's what I do quite a bit of when I'm at work. That's, that's the majority of my duties. We also take, um, collect vital signs, other specimens. Basically, um, there's a lot of things that don't require a whole lot of like really specialized training. Like that stuff is mostly left to the nurses or another position called the MSTs, multi-skilled technicians. They're the ones who take blood and um, do EKGs or like um, like do heart tests, things like that. Um, So yeah, I do. I just I work with the patients quite a bit. Okay. And so, how long have you worked there? On June 1st, I will have worked there for a year. Wow. So I've been there for a while. Yes. And so how do you enjoy the job? Like, and um, for you personally, what do you think is your importance in the lives of these patients? Um, I love my job. I really like taking care of people. It's very rewarding being able to help people who need a lot of help. Um, And I might be a little bit biased considering this is my job, but I would say that um, the text position is really important in the lives of patients while they're in the hospital. So especially um, because I said I work primarily with older people. So my patients typically need a lot of help eating, bathing, dressing. So we end up spending a lot of time with all of our patients and um, because they really rely on other people to to help them um, live their day-to-day lives. So at least yeah. on my floor, at least we're, we're pretty important. It helps, our, um, our being there really allows the nurses to focus more on, um, on just like, Let's see. Just it allows the nurses to focus more on their job on more of the medical side. So, like making sure everybody's yeah. getting their medicine on time, um, taking more like care of patients that need more, much more specialized care that's beyond the scope of what a tech like myself can do. So, it's really yeah. helped us to um, just make sure that each patient is getting a really high level of care. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much for doing that. Oh, uh, type of, of word over there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I'm curious, do you have any stories per chance, but like, you know, working there, you know, any impactful stories just of what, of any patients in particular that you've worked with? Yeah. Um, so Would you be willing to share one of them? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So I've, um, I work on the oncology palliative floor. So 
it can be kind of a, a highly emotional job because we're working with a lot of um, really sick patients. Yeah, I and, bet, yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, death is a, a pretty big part of our job because we are palliative. So I think I can only count on, like, maybe on one hand, the number of shifts I've worked where someone has not passed away. But, the, I mean, that's the purpose of our floor, a part of our floor, is to um, be a hospice floor. Um, but it's really... Oddly enough, our floor is really happy. We try to make a good environment for our patients because we know that they're really struggling. They're either nearing the end of their lives or they're um, going through a really serious illness. So it's actually really quite bright, as bright as cheery as we can make it while still acknowledging how serious it is for the people who are on our floor. But when you asked that question, it came to mind. Um, one patient I took care of a while ago who they were, um, uh, someone who had been in and out of hospitals quite a bit due to illnesses and injuries. And I have to speak, of course, very um, generically because of HIPAA laws. Yeah, of um, course, yeah. But they, um, I was in there um, quite a bit with them because they needed quite a bit of help. They couldn't really move on their own very well. They needed a lot of help eating because they didn't have a whole lot of use of their hands. Um, so I got to talking to them quite a bit and they were, just telling me about like just their life story, their journey with their illness. And really I wasn't doing anything more than I would normally do, you know, just coming in and helping them with whatever they needed and just being an ear. I think that's a big part of a tech's job is being an ear for our patients. And later at the end of my shift, she was just thanking me profusely about, um, just for everything that I've done. And I said, of course, you know, of course, this is, this is what I do. This is my job. Um, and she ended mm-hmm. up writing to my manager to say how, in, like how much, like how grateful she had been that I had like been there to take care of her. And it, was, it really impressed upon me. Aww. How, yeah. How, how yeah. important just it can be to just sit and, you know, listen to someone who needs, to talk because you know she was going through or they were going through a really stressful part yeah. of their life yeah. and uh, just having someone there to listen that was uh, that was really important for her so that's absolutely yeah. just having someone there to listen I've yeah. gone it's just in so many different places in life is just all that's needed not someone to fix what yeah. you're going through but just someone to hear you out and understand what you're going through exactly yeah yeah um, one of the things you mentioned was death, which I think is, you know, coming to terms with that is a really interesting thing. Um, mm-hmm. I actually shouted on colleges and that was also a huge presence, you know, mm-hmm. people having to tell people that, oh, you know, you're going through, you know, stage four, stage five breast cancer. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, you're going to have to face the reality that it might not work out as we want it. Mm-hmm. So how do you come to terms with that, um, especially surrounded by all these patients that you uh, care about so much? Um, I think it's it's definitely hard. I can remember um, having more than one patient that was on our floor for a long time who, you know, they had late stage cancer of one form or another. And, um, you know, they were scheduled for surgery and then it came back that, you know, the surgery wasn't going to be able to go forward because the cancer was just too advanced and then watching them decline. And it's it's hard, but I think what we all try to do and what I definitely try to do is focus on what we can do for the patient. So I'm I'm a tech. I'm not a physician, but I can make sure that this patient is comfortable. So what can I do to make this patient comfortable so just really yeah focusing on what what can you do to make this situation better you can't fix it as like we were talking about but can we make it more comfortable and I think that's that's really the the purpose of like hospice and palliative care is making it making the end of life comfortable and Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be sad or scary it can be well comfortable yeah I, I think that's a powerful statement because you know, being a healthcare professional, you won't be able to do everything and empowered. We're just not there to fix every certain, you know, ailment there is. So that's mm-hmm. a very, very true thing that, you know, as long as we're there trying to avidly help, mm-hmm. that's all that's important. You know, that'll mm-hmm. already make the impact we want to. So, yeah, yeah well said. Um, so I just want to provide that background because what I then want to talk about and ask you about is your 
experiences in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to start off, were you working as a PCT when the outbreak started to happen? Yes, I was. Okay. And so when you were there, what actions did the hospital or, you know, the place where you were working at, what what actions did they start to do? Yeah, so I, uh, unfortunately, they came ill um, soon after the um, COVID cases came to Ohio. So I've not been there very much um, for the actual outbreak. But right leading up to it, I noticed in reading a lot of my patients' notes that all of them had infectious disease um, consultations, even if they themselves are not suspected of having an infectious disease. So someone who was just in for um, pain management due to cancer, they they had an infectious disease consult. And that was definitely something I'd never seen before. And I think they were trying to make sure to catch any cases that may be showing up early. Um, Did that worry you at first? No, I I was surprised to see it. But I thought that that was a really good step to take. Um, just to someone who knows and has studied infectious diseases, looking at every patient that is walking that is on our floor. I can't say through the doors of the hospital, but on our floor at the very least. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I thought that was a good step to take. Uh, but at that time, there were no cases. I think the very last shift that I worked before I became ill, there it was the day, the very first day that we had confirmed cases in Columbus, Ohio. So at that point, we didn't have any added um, personal protective equipment um, requirements aside from like, you know, wearing gloves, changing gloves with each patient. Some patients had um, special precautions that you had to take, but now um, you, of course you have to wear a mask a hundred percent of the time when you're there. If you're on a COVID floor, there's even more um, precautions that you have to take, but none of that was in place yet. So this is like early March. There is no PPE yet. And I know that a lot of people believe that many cases occurred in the U.S. before March. Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe that would have been true, or do you agree with that statement, or based on what you saw or seen? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a uh, a reasonable statement to make. Um, I'm trying. I don't recall any cases on our floor that could have that really stand out. I mean, we have a lot of patients that come in with lung problems anyway, but I, I don't, I haven't seen anything in reading of um, just like papers or anything like that, that would point, that would say otherwise that yeah. cases wouldn't have occurred already. I think it's, that's yeah. a fair statement to make. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really difficult to say because it's just so easily, you know, it, it has similar symptoms to different other diseases. So it's really difficult to pinpoint it down, especially that early on, because some people, yeah, especially in your floor with the same similar like cardiovascular conditions and lung conditions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so then you personally came down with a mysterious ailment as well. Yes, I did. Um, And so when did you first have symptoms of that? So it was March 15th that I began showing symptoms. Yeah. Okay. And what were those symptoms? So that day, I noticed that when I woke up in the morning, that when I was lying down flat on my back, I could breathe normally. I felt completely normal. But then when I would sit or stand up, I would get extremely noticeably short of breath. Um, And that over the next couple of days, I developed a really awful dry cough and that I was having a um, steadily rising fever. So those were my first symptoms. But then I've since developed a wide range of symptoms. Oh, goodness. And so how would you compare what you've dealt with to the flu or any other illness you've had? So I did eventually test positive for flu, for influenza A about a month into my symptoms. Um, But the one thing, you know, flu doesn't generally, when I've had the flu before, um, it lasts a week at most, you know, you feel terrible for day one and two, then you start to feel better. And then by the end of the week, you're done. Or if you're really unlucky, maybe it goes into the next week. This one is very strange. That was very early on what I, the only way I could really describe it because I would feel pretty normal sometimes. And then other times I would just be really, really short of breath, exhausted, you know, 
He has to take breaks speaking. That's something you might still hear me do. I have to stop um, speaking and take a breath. Um, and just then moving forward, you know, you get, you just have a lot of, like a lot of really like odd symptoms that change a lot. I think the, the one thing that was very different from the flu was the fever. So, you know, if you have a flu, it's generally pretty level. If it, it might be a little lower in the morning and then it gets a little bit higher throughout the day, but it generally stays, you know, at a fever level, right? This one, I noticed as I was taking my temperatures that it jumps all over the place. So one minute I'll take it and it will be a normal temperature, like 98.1, right? And uh-huh. then I'll be sitting, doing absolutely nothing, watching TV. I'll take it 15 minutes later, it's 101. And then another 15 minutes later and it's down 99 point something. And it's done that consistently through the two months that I've been sick. Wow. So that, that's really the strangest symptom. Um, also over the past probably month, um, the, uh, like the weakness is very strange. You have to put a lot of thought into even like getting out of bed. Whereas, you know, if you're well, you just, you just kind of get out of bed, but yeah, um, now you you have to really think about it. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, um, a high heart rate is something that has cropped up. So, you, you know, you'll be sitting in bed doing nothing and your heart rate um, is over a hundred beats per minute. So wow. I think that's, that's really come. I think that's really what differs from the flu. You know, flu is just fever. Sometimes you feel like you've been hit by a bus and that's really about it. Maybe if you have a weak spot in your lungs, you might get a bit of a cough, but yeah. other than that, it's pretty cut and dry, but there's nothing that's cut and dry about this illness. And that's a weird thing. Cause like coronavirus just so far has been very, very weird. You know, you know, some people are going through what you're going through. Other people have it and don't mm-hmm. get sick at all. Like that's what but, I know. I, I know some yeah. friends that have done, have had shown no symptoms. Oh yeah, that's I forget the exact percentage of people that don't show symptoms, but it's an strangely high percentage of people that are asymptomatic carriers. Yeah, and so did you ever get diagnosed with COVID nineteen? I know you said you got diagnosed with influenza A, but it was weird. But yes, so this has been the progression. Um, right after I started showing symptoms in March, I was able to get tested for COVID and flu because of my job as a healthcare worker. Mm -hmm. Um, I tested negative for everything, both influenza A and COVID. Um, however, I later found out that that test was performed incorrectly. That was still in the early days when they were trying to figure out how to really test what's the best method of testing. And now they know that they have to do deep nasal swab to get accurate results and I did not get that, so the test. What did you get? So they just swabbed the inside of my nostrils, rather than oh. really deep. Yeah. So um, those test results are not considered to be significant at this point. So I don't know um, what. So the, yeah, the, we can't really draw any conclusions based on that test um, in March. About a month later, I was still suffering from pretty severe symptoms. So I, my doctor was able to find me a second test because of the duration of my symptoms and, again, my position as a healthcare worker. At that time, um, I tested positive for influenza A and negative for COVID, but my doctor was very suspicious because she um, only my flu symptoms had like symptoms you would classify as like classically flu, like severe body aches, uh, extreme fatigue had only cropped up over maybe the past week and she did not think that it that just the flu explained my earlier symptoms of like shortness of breath and cough and things like that um so, so she it is possible me, you got like a double whammy yes yes it is um she told me to assume that i was positive for covid just to be safe um because the tests are not 100 percent accurate um and then to just you know wait she gave me a two-week quarantine period for influenza um, and then said, you know, we'll reevaluate at the end of these two weeks. Um, and she, then she, of course she gave me antivirals for the flu. And this is the kind of thing why I agree with her theory of, um, that I was at not just positive for influenza A is because 
my symptoms were improved with antivirals, which of course we know that antivirals only help with influenza if they're given very early on in the illness. And at that point, I'd already been sick for a month, right? So yeah. my symptoms are going to be improved with antivirals. I had not been sick with the flu for very long. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah. So that's the frustrating thing about the the, the testing also, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's been studies that have shown that there's been false negatives up to 30% yeah. of the time, which is mm-hmm. very high. Um, and obviously with the antiviral issue you had, um, yeah, it, it, it kind of hurts because especially right now when we need testing to mm-hmm. A, open up and B, make sure that we are quarantining those who need to be quarantined. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are saying that you had these, uh, these symptoms for a long time. Um, yes. how long have you had them and do you still have these symptoms? I do still have these symptoms. I am now had them for 69 days as of today. Um, yeah, I was actually tested a third time for COVID, uh, last week, um, tested negative again, but then positive again for influenza A, which is not a normal thing. So on Tuesday, I will be seeing an infectious disease specialist to try and get to the root of, um, what's going on. But even after that third negative test, I have been told to still take precautions like I did do have a positive COVID test because this is a very odd illness that I have come by. <laughs> and unfortunately, again, there have been more cases than there should be of people who test negative for COVID one, two, and three times and then finally test positive after that. So it's best that's, to exercise caution. Yeah. But it's also something to emphasize because you're not the first story to potentially have someone that has had it for a longer period of time. Right. I mean, I've uh, like, tell me about what you've heard, but I've heard of people that have had Corona, it's become dormant and it's popped up again. Mm-hmm. I've heard of people that have, that, you know, have had mysterious illnesses like you. And then, you know, as you said, the third time it's popped up that, Oh, they have Corona. I've heard mm-hmm. of people that, you know, get really sick for a long time then are okay. But that virus is still in their system. Mm-hmm. And I think the scariest thing is that we're still trying to understand what this COVID-19 thing is. For example, can we get it again? Can we not get it again? Mm-hmm. There's been studies that are people that have claimed to have gotten Corona twice. Um, right. Even after like recovering from it, you know, allegedly. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, what do you think? Like, it, it's just like a very, it's so variable. Right. Um, I know I've heard that they think there are two strains of it. So one where, you know, you get 103 fever right off the bat, you get super sick, and then you're done in two weeks. And then also this longer one that a lot of people seem to be getting where, you know, your symptoms might be not be as severe or they might be, but it just sticks around forever. But I've actually, through a, um, a Washington Post journalist, she, um, she started a um, support group on Slack for people who either have COVID or are suffering from these mysterious illnesses that just drag on forever and can't be explained. And everything that I've described, I mean, at first, you know, when I first started having these, we heard of COVID as you get hit with 103 fever, you're super sick, and then you're done in two weeks. And I was just wondering, like, you know, what is this that I have? Is Am I the only one that's that has these symptoms? And I joined this um support group. And it turns out that this is a pretty universal experience for a lot of people having these wide, wide ranges of symptoms, you know, testing, not get testing positive two and three times before finally testing positive, having it, getting better, and then getting testing positive again. Um, I've spoken to a couple nurses who had it, went back to work, were fine, and then tested positive again. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it really does illustrate that we don't know how COVID, what it does. Does it go dormant? Can you get it multiple times, as you said? And that's why we really need to exercise a lot of caution when dealing with this. I think that's true. And, of course, we'll talk this later because um, I have some more questions about your thoughts on other people's opinions of COVID. But yes, of course. that was... That's something I think, yeah, as you said, we need to emphasize that this isn't straightforward. This is not the flu. It's right. not clear cut. You get it and you get better. Some mm-hmm. people it is. Some people yeah. it isn't. Right. And again, like I know someone personally that had symptoms mm-hmm. and then 
two and a half weeks later got tested because one of their friends that they met, you know, before he even had symptoms mm-hmm. had the virus. And even two and a half weeks after the last onset of the symptoms, he was testing positive, even though he had no wow. symptoms. Yeah. And that, that's the scary part, you know? Right. Um, but, but yeah, well said. Um, so how have you processed the large length of your illness? Um, it's definitely been a really day-to-day thing or even an hour-to-hour kind of thing. For the first um, probably month and a half before I started having really severe symptoms, I was able to keep a pretty positive outlook because, of course, you you know, with the illnesses, the common illnesses most people run into anymore, it's kind of an open and shut thing. You know, maybe if you're super unlucky, you get over it in two weeks. Yeah, but then I mean, you, didn't, fine. you yeah. didn't plan on, like, be dealing with this for this long? Certainly not. Um, but I, so I just kept on, you know, thinking, like, oh, you know, it's week three, it's okay, you know, I'm still you know, resting, I'll, I'll be better, and um, I'll, then I'll be able to, you know, work again, see people, well, see people uh, with social distancing, of course, uh, mm-hmm. in my house, um, and then as it started to drag out, and then I started to get worse instead of better, then that was definitely a challenge to think that, you know, this is starting to get a little bit more serious. Yeah. So how has this affected? I know you love like being able to work. Mm-hmm. Um, how is the fact that you've not been able to go in and, um, you know, help these patients as you love doing, like how has that affected you? I have struggled with quite a bit of guilt over not being able to work. So I know, of course, that I can't very well go in and work with elderly people and cancer patients with no immune systems while having a mystery illness or even just being positive for influenza. I, um, but still, I, I have not quite been able to shake the feeling over these past two months that I'm somehow like skipping out on my as a healthcare worker, but I should be there, even though I know that it would really just make it worse and I wouldn't really be helping anyone if I went in while infected with this infectious disease. But yeah, I'm, it's been it's been very difficult. It's hard thinking of all of my colleagues, all of my friends who are still working at the hospital when I I can't be. Yeah, and I, I've I mean the phrase "it's not your fault" has definitely been thrown around. I'm sure it's something that you've heard yourself that you know mm-hmm. it's not your fault that you got sick. Um, but again, I'm, I'm sure that phrase has been told to you already. Like, what is your reaction to that phrase? It's not your fault. I mean, it's definitely true. I mean, the the thing with, with viruses, they spread, illnesses spread, and it's very, very difficult to keep them from doing so. So nobody really asks to get sick. Nobody wants to be infected with, with COVID or whatever mystery illness it is that I have or with influenza. So it, that, that is true. It is not my fault that I have been sick, but I think that even knowing that and understanding that there's still like the desire to, to work, to help. And the fact that I am prevented from doing that make is, is hard still. Yeah. But has this guilt translated to your relationships with your friends or your family? Um, I think it's been, it has a little bit because of course, you know, the feeling of guilt, the feeling of, of sadness or even depression does change you as a person. It changes how you may may act, how you may approach things in life. And while I've tr- still been actively trying to fight depression and feelings of that, um, it's still, I'm still sad a lot of the time. You know, I'll, I'll talk, I'll be talking to my mom who I live with and I'll think, you know, I'm sad today because today was a day I was supposed to be at work, but I had to call off again because I'm sick. And it's not, it's even if I'm able to, you know, find a happy point in my life or find a bright side in a moment in a day, it's still a constant factor that I am sad because I have been sick for two months and I am, I cannot do my job. Yeah. So it's, and it's a, it's a factor now. Yeah. 
I bet that. And ta- with you talking about your guilt and your sadness, that's where I want to backtrack. I'm yeah. going to provide some context in towards your mental health journey, because I know you talked to me about how this has been affecting your previous mental health right. um, illnesses and stuff like that. So just to start off broad, what have you dealt with in the past? So I have been, I was treated for major depression and generalized anxiety disorder starting um, when I was 13, when I was in middle school. Um, for context, now I'm 21 years old. Um, and over the past three years, I have been in treatment pretty consistently uh, for those same two things and also post-traumatic stress disorder. So where does, like, for you personally, where do you think your depression or anxiety stems from? Does it stem from anything specific or is it just like it's been there and has been there? Uh, My therapist has um, suspected that part of my depression and anxiety is clinical. So, um, due to just inbound genetic imbalances of um, various neurotransmitters in the brain or yeah. other um, reasons I'm not terribly well read on the exact cause like um, suspected causes of um, various mental health issues but um, and I think that my my family background other people in my family um, most people on my on one side of my family either suffer from some form of depression or anxiety. So I think that my, my family history does back that up as it being a partially a genetic thing, but it's also um, circumstantial as well. Yeah. And that's an important fact to show because I think people do miss out on the fact that, you know, these mental health issues sometimes are genetic and, mm-hmm. you know, despite our best intentions, like we can prevent this basic, you know, biology. Um, and I'm sorry I had to go through all that. Um, and is. yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and talking about what is what it is, uh, you look towards treatment and mm-hmm. um, you've been dealing with this for around eight years now. Yes. Um, what do you do to help your um, depression and anxiety? Well, I've been in therapy mostly. Uh, I think that's been a really major factor being able to get to where I am now, I'm majorly better than where I was when I started out three years ago. Um, but I've also done a lot of work just in my day-to-day life. So I'm a martial artist. I think that that works a lot on um, discipline and things like that, yeah. and having a, a constant in your life. Are you a black belt? Yes, I am. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been, yeah, it's been a lot, many years of training in, in self-discipline and mm-hmm. learning how to control not only your own body, but your own mind. So that, that has been very, very helpful. Um, and also just the support I found in the people who I train with. Um, I've also been doing yoga for the past four years now, um, which of course is a lot of the same thing is working a lot with controlling your, your thoughts and just working with yourself. And with that meditation um, is kind of, is in the same vein. It's something I do on a regular basis. Uh, and then also, um, I'm a big fan of listening to music. Some, a lot of times I'll have um, difficulty trying to verbalize how it is that I'm feeling. But if I can find a song that does it for me, that yeah. helps me work through what it, whatever it is that I'm feeling at a, a given moment. For example, yeah, I, I mean, when I've like through what I've gone through, music has also helped a lot. Um, mm-hmm. What has what type of music or like maybe what songs or artists helped you specifically? Um, so I listen to a great, like a great variety of music. Um, and it really depends on the day or how I'm feeling. If I've just gone through something pretty bad, a lot of times I'll listen to rap music because that's a lot of time. It's the, it's the similar feeling, you know, you don't want a nice song when you feel horrible, but yeah, a lot of the rap songs, um, it's the, just the tone, the the style is is really, I think, helpful for me personally. But yeah. one, song, one song that really stands out to me is um, Flaws and Sins by Juice World. It's a, a song. Oh. About. Are you familiar with that song? I, I'm not familiar with that song. I know Juice World though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's, I think that's my favorite song by him. And oh, um, wow. it's it's got this one one section in it um traumatized from my past yeah i keep a log in my mind in my head where that stuff he doesn't say stuff but 
yeah. um, where that belongs. <laughs> and I think that just really resonated with me. And just other stuff that he talks about in that song, um, some of it's not really mental-related, but a lot of it is. And it's just, it really, it really resonates with me. So that's a song I listen to a lot of times if I'm not feeling great. Yeah. Or something's bothering me. I completely get that. Like, it's completely relatable what you're saying mm-hmm. because music is such a great therapy in terms of, for me, it's all production. So whenever the music gets to me, um, like whenever I'm going through a uh, sort of depressive episode or something like that, um, mm-hmm. Swimming by Mac Miller, I just play that album. Yeah. And I just let that drown me out. Um, and some of the lyrics, like... Um, yeah, I'm not huge of a lyrics guy, but when you play like Ladders or his and anything from like 2009, mm-hmm. um, it just it it, it I don't I don't know how to explain it. It kind of just swarms you out. It's not that yeah. it gets you out of it, but it may, almost like validates what exactly. you're feeling. That's a good way, a way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I found it really awesome that you like, or at least therapeutic that you listen to these specific lyrics and find a way for that. Or not find a way, but like be able to relate to that because it's almost mm-hmm. it, it's not social support because they're not there with you, but it is a form of support that someone else. Yeah, you know, like you're not the only one. Energy. Yeah, um, and it's also interesting that all of your activities is all about mentality. Uh huh. You know, and like from yoga to martial art, arts and music, and so by using these things, you're using these activities to either boost your mental, um, your, your mentality or make it more flexible. Uh, could you talk about that maybe a little bit about, you know, what like that journey has been like for using these activities to increase your self-discipline and things like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been um, training in martial arts since I was, um, how old was I? I was 15. And again, I've been doing it for about seven years. Um, and I, you know, I started out, I had friends who were doing it. It's a very small dojo that I, um, I'm a part of, um, pretty traditional. And, you know, I just, I got, I went in there and I loved, I loved what they were teaching. The idea of, of discipline, of responsibility. Yeah. And I think I was really able very quickly to start using those ideas that training in my everyday life, like not even the self-defense side of it, but just the mental training and the things that we, we learn because we don't, we don't just um, train in self-defense. We also train in, in ideology. We do a lot of um, before and after class. We'll do some readings on like old Eastern texts. Um, well, that's and, really cool. Yeah. So like, I'm trying to think of some, like Confucius is one that we will have some and that slipped my mind at this moment but yeah so it's it's a whole it's a whole mindset it's not just self-defense but it's a whole a whole way of life almost a whole way of thinking I think better said yeah and then, yeah mm-hmm. and so something I'm curious about also mm-hmm. is outside of these activities is in terms of just therapy yeah. um especially towards like coronavirus time. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that worked out for you with social distancing? Um, so it's been a bit of a, a bit different. Um, I've done um, online therapy of telehealth, I think it's called, or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's definitely different. First of all, because I'm in a home with other people, so I can't speak as freely as I would if I was in my therapist's office because of course because with the sense yeah. that someone might overhear um, despite the precautions I take to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. Oh, something, someone last week said the exact same thing the really? last episode <laughs> where they're just like, yeah, I'm in my room, but I don't want to say anything too loudly or be completely open because my parents might hear. Exactly. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially in my house, the the walls are very thin, and you can hear everything <laughs> through the vents. So, yeah, it's, I definitely am very conscious of that. But then there's also just something different about seeing someone on a screen versus seeing someone sitting in front of you, and I've not really been able to figure out exactly what that is. But that's definitely also, I think, affected the 
I'll say quality of sessions. I don't feel like you can get really as, as deep or connect as much through a screen, but it is still, I think better to do telehealth than to do nothing at all. That's very true, but you are right. I don't, I think it's the fact that if someone's there in person, you know, it's different from just calling and face them because it's awkward when you're, you know, uh, FaceTiming someone or Zooming someone. But mm-hmm. if you're there with pers- in person, it's just, I don't know, it, it's, it's just, it's, there's more of a human interaction and presence. Mm-hmm. But I, I completely agree with you with that. Um, but it is true that it it is better to have something rather than nothing at all. And so I assume that you're, you and your therapist are talking about like this current situation where you can't work. Um, and have you seen your mental health getting better or worse? So at first I actually saw it getting better because I had more time with, um, you know, online classes and, um, the lockdown that I didn't have anything else to do outside of classes because I wasn't working and I couldn't go anywhere than to, you know, work on myself. So I did a lot of meditation. I did as much yoga as I was able to do um, with my illness, which I think that's, that's eventually when I started to see my mental health take a downturn when I became sick to do more than stretch for five minutes a day. Um, yeah. But at first, at first I was able to, I'm really, I felt really good. I was able to do a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga, and I felt really, like, I think my anxiety levels hadn't been lower in a very long time. Um, but then, as I said, I got much sicker, and that's when I think a lot of the depression and anxiety started to take over, because that is a pretty major hobby of mine, is working out, doing yoga, and that was, yeah. no, I was no longer able to do that. Yeah. And also, in terms of yoga and working out and uh, martial arts, there's also that social support that you're talking about that you work in a small dojo. How has you yeah, been living at home? How's been living at home and being isolated from those friends um, affected that social support system? I've been distant from them, of course. My sensei still does do um, class via Google um, Google Meetup, so it's uh it's an interesting experience. Half the time you can only <laughs> see, you can either see them or you can hear them. So yeah. it's, it, but it's better than nothing. You know, we still get uh, a little bit of training and I don't really, because um, when he started doing that, I was really too sick to do a lot of things. I'm still not really able to do much. Mm-hmm. I still try to, you know, come like come in quote unquote and get yeah. something, some work in. Um, yeah. With I'm very good friends with um, one person that I've trained with, so I've been talking to him over text and on on the phone calls because uh, he's not able to come uh, to chime into class. Um, so that's been nice. But, yeah, everybody else who hasn't been able to chime into class, um, I know a lot of people were affected by losing their jobs. Um, so, it's I, yeah, I think it has been less of a, a social experience because again of the screen factor we were discussing yeah and so do you think it's like the same it's obviously not going to be the same but do you think that not having this uh, in-person social support you know the, the fact that it's over zoom rather than in person do you mm-hmm. think that's affected your mental health as well i think so um, not as much as I would have expected or as much as I've heard from other people that it has affected them because it is something, you know, I am still yeah. able to, to see people, even if it's not in person and talk to people. And that, that has helped a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the one other question I was curious about was yeah. you, you mentioned job aspects and I want to relate that back to, um, you know, your job as a PCT and the fact that you weren't able to work, did ever, you know, creep up on you, like, subliminally, even if it might not be true that, you know, would they would they fire me? Would they not fire me? Or, oh, and yeah. if I they do, yeah. Can you talk oh, about that? Absolutely. Um, so I've, yeah, I've been out for two months and 
I've only in that two months, I was able to make it to one shift. I was very briefly cleared to work again because it seemed like my illness was over, but then it relapsed. And that's how I ended up getting tested the third time and, and going to see the infectious disease specialist, like I said earlier. Yeah. Um, I had to take a leave of absence for other, like partially for my illness, partially because I live with um, high risk family members and I was not going to be permitted to continue living with them and keeping my job at the hospital. So there was a, a mild housing issue there, but I had oh, tried wow, to take okay. leave of, of absence. I was very afraid that they were going to just fire me, even though I was hired as a, um, a cat, what's called a casual worker. So you don't have required hours through the week. It's been helpful, um, being, um, allowing me to keep my job. As been I've more been flexible rather than, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sense. so that's yeah. that's why I originally took the job because I was a student and um but I still wanted to be able to work uh film. Yeah. But um so that's why I was able to they let me keep my job at first, but then I was supposed to be working full time um through May and June. And right now I've missed six shifts, so full half a month of work yeah. due to the second wave of my illness and my when I actually called off this last time. My, uh, the charge nurse I spoke to told me, you know, um, cause I said I was going to, I'll mail my, uh, or I'll email in my doctor's note. And he said, yeah, um, I'll make sure to have the boss call you. Cause I don't want you to run into any trouble because you're calling off quite a bit. I was like, yeah, I know. Okay. And though I am technically covered because I do have a doctor's note, excusing my absence all the way back through March. Um, yeah. it's still a, a concern that I might run into trouble. Yeah. And did you talk to your boss? What did your boss say about this? Uh, she's yet to call me, but uh, oh, okay. I'm hoping to there tomorrow. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And has your family been okay? I know you've been living with your family. Um, your parents have mm-hmm. they been okay? Yeah, that's actually the thing we've been laughing about. That when this all started, we were really, really afraid that my mother, who has um, <clears throat> a number of health issues, was going to get it, and then my father, who is of the age, um, like the most at-risk age that we were concerned about them, but then it's been me who's been, who's was of the least concern for two months. And then my father got a little sick briefly over the course of a week. And I asked my mom one day, like, Oh, did you ever feel sick? And she said, I had a tickle in my throat, maybe one day. (laughs) (laughs) It's a small thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm very grateful. That they have so far been okay, but it, it is a, almost a little funny that it's the complete opposite of how we really expected it to go. Yeah, it's a weird situation, but I'm glad they're doing okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So now I'm curious your opinions on um, a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, thoughts about COVID-19 because as you've had um, experience working with in a hospital or working. Up with patients and being around COVID as much as you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts were on these opinions. Uh, and the first one being that, you know, a lot of people believe that the virus isn't really that bad. You know, they believe right. the common flu is way worse and mm-hmm. not that many people are dying anyway. What are your thoughts on that? So I confess to having thought this myself back in early March. Many of my coworkers thought this as well because, you know, there was a lot of data emerging at the time that showed a very low death rate. Um, and it, it really did look like the common flu and people were afraid because, you know, there's no treatment for this. And we were saying as well, like, you know, past the first 36 hours of the flu, there's no treatment besides supportive care for the flu either. So that we all agreed with that statement, but now we were completely wrong because we're seeing that the, a lot of the limited data that was emerging had very restricted parameters for classifying an illness as COVID for the purpose of keeping numbers down. And we're seeing that it has a pretty high death rate. Um, and then the people who even who don't die suffer from very long illnesses, as we've t- discussed, and yeah. from a lot of complicated issues. We're seeing that, that COVID not only causes respiratory distress, but also kidney problems and blood clots. And that's something that has been coming out as affecting Young people, a lot of young people have, I've heard, have this opinion, but yeah. they're finding young people are dying of strokes. Uh, and then these blood clots, all of the anticoagulants that would normally be used to treat blood clots in strokes, for some reason, at least at the time I read this article, um, they were not 
working. So the only treatment we have right now to combat COVID is oxygen. And we really don't know how, what this is, what it does, or how to even provide supportive care beyond oxygen. So I think that the virus is that bad. It is much worse than the common flu. And there are more people than we originally realized who are suffering very severe consequences. Going back to what you were saying about young people getting it, I think it's really interesting because, I mean, I have been also one of the people that didn't believe this illness was that big of a deal mm-hmm. until, obviously, all the lockdowns started happening. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that there's a lot of young people getting strokes and long-term illnesses, such mm-hmm. as yourself. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. And that's kind of scary that the only thing that can work potentially is just oxygen and just naturally getting over it. I know the FDA has been looking at potential treatments, but I think Dr. Fauci has been very adamant about the fact that they aren't at all been proven successful. Exactly. I think most of the evidence is anecdotal of other treatments working and some of them, for whatever reason, might work on one patient, but then not work on another one. So it's a case-by-case basis if you do find yourself with an illness severe enough to be hospitalized. There, there are treatments that doctors will try. It's not that they'll just give you oxygen and say, well, that's all we can do. But yeah. there's just nothing that is that they will say right now that is working across the board on everyone. Absolutely. Um, and so there's another opinion that I'm curious what your thoughts were on. Um, revolving on social distancing. Many people believe, you know, that this is too much. It's unnecessary and that we should just open up and let the virus run its course. Yes. And I'm I'm only mainly focused on the last point because I understand some people need to open up because they don't have that source of income, which I'm not going to argue that point. That point, I can understand mm-hmm. the frustrations, but I'm more focused on the fact that we should just open up and let the virus run its course. So I definitely understand why people might think that. And if you are strugg- like struggling with income to make like rent or buy food or things like that, and I especially understand why many healthy people, especially young people, might feel this way, but I don't think that people really understand what it is that they're saying. So when they say we're going to let the virus run its course, it's very easy to think that that's not going to affect you in any way. It's not going to be your grandmother who dies alone in the hospital because there are no visitors, especially not on COVID floors. It's not going to be your father who ends up on a ventilator for two weeks and he's going to face a monumental road to recovery. Because, of course, you you end up on a ventilator. You don't just come off of it and go home. It's a long time of physical therapy. You suffer as long as you have to retrain yourself to breathe. You are going to suffer most likely from mental and physical health issues for the rest of your life. You know, it's not going to be your sister who, if the hospitals get overrun, Uh, or overwhelmed, who's going to be one of four patients waiting for one ventilator. And that's what social distancing is trying to prevent, is stop our hospitals from getting overwhelmed with patients, because that's when people start to die, because you have to ration treatment, the doctors will have to decide who gets a ventilator, and that's when you start seeing a massive loss of life, like we did in Italy. And in Columbus, our hospitals are doing very well. Um, I'm... I confess to being a bit concerned about this opening up, how the hospitals are going to fare. Mm-hmm. But um, I digress. Um, but and, and I can I think that one of the points you made there is super important. That this is to make sure the hospitals can deal with everyone. Yes. Technically, yes, people will, you know, run its course. But the amount of casualties and people and like unnecessary deaths that we're going to have because mm-hmm. and, and preventable deaths that we'll have will just skyrocket. And that's the important part of social distancing. That's what we're trying to save a lot of people. Social distancing doesn't mean you don't get it. It means you delay the time you do get it so that way hospitals can deal with everyone, you know, at a constant, like a regular, non-overwhelming stream. Yes. But I think if anyone finds themselves thinking that the virus should run its course, I think they really need to consider what that means and who's going to be affected by that because it doesn't happen to you until it does. It's not until it's it's you who's 69 days and counting uh, eating your words because, because you said that 
this isn't going to be that bad, but then bet, you got it. <laughs> I bet you didn't even plan on this because you told me yourself, you you didn't even think it was a big deal at all no. either. No, I didn't. No one and then, did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I think it was less than a week after I said that, that I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Words of caution, folks. Words of caution. <laughs> um, and so the last opinion that I'm curious about is a lot of people who believe for some reason that this is all just a hoax. Um, mm-hmm. As a healthcare professional and someone who has dealt with illness herself, what is your response to people who just believe that this is just a hoax? You know, I also uh, hear a lot of these same people, they're very concerned about jobs and things like that. And to those people, I offer them a position on my floor. We're hiring. And so is the cleaning crew in my hospital, cafeteria, security, patient transport, if uh, patient care isn't your forte. I know grocery stores are hiring two delivery services, all kinds of um, these remote jobs um, are hiring if you're, if you're finding yourself concerned about jobs. And, you know, if it's just a hoax uh, and the hospitals are empty, I've heard that said, then um, you're just about to be getting paid to do nothing and you're not, there's not going to be any danger, right? So come, come join us. Come help. You're not going to lose anything after all if this is all just a hoax. But if you won't, if you're finding yourself thinking, you know, oh, I'm not going to do that, are you perhaps afraid that you just might be wrong? Um, could you possibly be wrong if this is a hoax? And could you be considering what you would have to lose if you're wrong? Um, but that that example aside, I would ask people to consider the sources of their information where they're getting the idea that this might be a hoax um, and what these people who are saying that this might be a hoax, where are you getting your information from, what they might have to gain personally by opening this country back up. And yeah. I would also ask these people who think it is a hoax to consider what they have to lose if they're wrong, Who what? because uh, it's not just them that they would have to lose, but their family members, and that it is a bet that they're taking that in calling this a hoax and uh, consider what you're willing to, to bet on that. Yeah, yeah. And so before we wrap this all up, I want to bring this conversation back to you and what you've gone through in the past 69 days. How are you feeling now? How do you think you're doing in comparison to, you know, the struggles you're dealing with earlier? Um, I think some things are getting better. Uh, I'm no longer, I no longer have the terrible dry cough that I had when this first started. I'm still struggling with shortness of breath. I don't know if you've been able to hear that or not. Um, yeah. That's definitely something I'm, I've, I've been feeling as I've been talking for so long. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I still struggle quite a bit with with weakness and fatigue, and uh, brain fog has been pretty big. Um, I made extensive notes before this to try to yeah. stave off brain fog for this conversation. But overall, yeah. I did too. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> um, I think some some aspects of my illness have gotten better. But some have gotten worse and some have, um, you know, some new things have cropped up. So I'm still I'm still in the thick of this, but I am doing my best mental health wise to every anything I can to make each moment a little bit better. If I'm feeling poorly, I ask myself, what can I do right this second to make to make this better? You know, I can't I can't heal myself. I can't go back to work. I can't fix this, but what can I do to make this a little bit better? Uh, from a mindset level, after everything you've gone through, what do you plan on doing? Not in terms of career, but in terms of your own personal choices and decisions in dealing with your ailment and the fact that you may not be able to work for a little bit. What is your mindset going forward with that? Um, I just plan on taking each day as it comes. You know, maybe yesterday I had a really um, bad illness day, so I couldn't do much at all. Today I'm feeling a bit better, so I will work to not overdo it, of course, but, you know, maybe I'll get some things done today that I wasn't able to do yesterday. And then Mm -hmm. just I think one something that comes up in yoga quite a bit is the idea of going about your day with today's body. So by that I mean what I can do today might not be what I could do yesterday and it might not be what I can do tomorrow. Maybe I'll be better tomorrow. Maybe I won't be, but I need to focus on what I can do today and try to make the best of that. One day at a time then. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Um, really love yeah. the conversation we had today. And, yeah, thank you, for having me. you know, regardless of what happens during this pandemic, I know in the future you'll be out there saving patients' lives and making an impact. 
thank for you. everyone out there. Um, thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I apologize if there were any disturbances. It's pretty difficult to record phone calls, but I think it turned out pretty okay. If you want to share your experiences dealing with corona or mental health in general, contact me at rola.3 at osu.edu. Once again, thank you all for listening, and I'll see you all back next week.